In the United States, it's often considered rude to discuss matters of money and class. And, save for a cycle of Depression-era Hollywood films, it's also something that has largely gone unspoken in mainstream American cinema. On this episode of the Film Comet podcast, we hope to break that silence. I was joined by Nick Pinkerton, Cameron Collins, and Eric Hines to address depictions of wealth and poverty in narrative and documentary films, as well as questions of authorship and authenticity. Hello and welcome to the Film Comet podcast. I'm Violet Luca. I'm the digital editor, and today I'm joined by... Uh, Nick Pinkerton, a contributor regularly to Film Comment, Art Forum, and various other venues. Cameron Collins, I write for The Ringer. And Eric Hines, I'm a Film Comment contributor as well and associate curator of film at the Museum of the Moving Image, where we are right now. Yes. <laughs> Thank you all for coming, except for Eric. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't have to come anywhere. Yeah. So today we're going to be focusing on representations of wealth and poverty in film because it's sort of an evergreen, perpetually relevant topic because money is something that we all have to live with or live without. And it's interesting how, you know, different films tackle not only just representations of it in terms of the narrative, can this character afford this operation? What does this mean for the type of place that they live in? Just sort of like regular character attributes, but also just in larger terms of, is it realistic for the time? Is it an enduring portrayal of what it means to be poor, what it means to be rich? Not character traits, but sort of like positive and negative traits are sort of attached to the to either of those poles. But I guess we could start off by talking about generally how a portrayal of like poverty is different uh, in literature versus in film. What medium specific tools there are to characterize or establish this outside of a narrative concern. Perhaps to an unusual degree for fairly obvious reasons, we have been forced to think about the super rich more than perhaps we usually like to uh, over the last, say, six months or so. <laughs> I mean, yesterday I had the great pleasure of reading a lengthy profile of Jared Kushner. Mm. I don't know why. I don't know why I did that with my time. <laughs> and well, you're never going to die. All of these, all of these sort of shadowy figures are emerging from the uh, from the shadows, yeah. and you know, one finds oneself getting sucked into uh, googling wormholes, reading up on Peter Thiel and yeah. his Countess Elizabeth Bathory-like <laughs> habits. Uh, and that so is not an exaggeration. He uh, is interested. Steals young people's blood. Yeah, he literally, he's interested in extent, life extension science, yeah. uh, which was, I saw a great documentary about it at South by Southwest that was never picked up. But uh, yeah, part of one of the technologies that he has invested in and uses himself is taking younger people's blood yeah. and putting it in his body. And my point, I suppose, is not that any of this has not been going on, no. but- Literally or figuratively. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> to, to a greater than usual degree, these sort of supervillain characters are a part of our daily lives now. Yeah, so. absolutely. Lex Luthor, never too far, <laughs> never too far. Uh, you know, I've been thinking a lot about this in terms of, since you brought up Lex Luthor, I feel I must talk about superheroes and superheroes, supervillains for a minute, because 
you know, Iron Man or even Batman now, who's a defense contractor, basically with abs. I have a, I have a, I, I don't know what to do with it. I don't know why we're so, so much more interested in even someone like Batman being super rich in a very materially specific money way, rather than just the money that's implied by his being able to make these fancy cars and date all these ballerinas in the way that I guess it was always there but I think only as of Christopher Nolan for example have I been paying attention to the idea of a rich superhero the idea of a villain also culturally maybe libertarian guy I don't know I don't know what to do with with this well I mean Batman is sort of like the original libertarian wet dream where it's like he's a rich guy who beats up poor people in his free time and he has unlimited yes. resources to do so. Absolutely. But I think the I mean I think you're right because with the Nolan adaptation, which was sort of separate from the comic or previous screen adaptations of that character, it's this idea that we're apl- we're applying this to the real world, quote unquote. And what that right. actually means still isn't real. It's like right. this movie notion of realism and it's incredible you know the i like there's so many problems when you try to take specifically that universe and apply it to what is supposed to be real because it's like well the idea that somebody like the character of two-face gets his half of his face burned off he should probably be be in like an oxygen tent for six months but instead he's like out and around like killing people and like wouldn't doing you stuff. be well, yeah like it's like <laughs> I mean, but i also i wouldn't because it would be really painful right. but just how nolan took that again like taking this character and making it very explicitly very right wing in a way that it hadn't been before and you know making him a defense contractor making him sort of like enact the bush era like the patriot act like hacking into people's phones and like learning all this information about them yeah it definitely takes it in a different way than it than it hadn't been previously well i was gonna say that there's there's an element there of trying to make it topical and current yeah and succeeding to a certain degree within that but then by applying that those things to these characters in the scenario then gets into this sort of questionable area of like who you're rooting for and why right. which i think no one's not an idiot he's sort of like he's negotiating that a little bit but it's very very far cry from the sort of super wealthy Bruce Wayne character who was part of a larger culture of aspiration right. when he was first mm-hmm. created. And I feel like Hollywood depicted wealth like crazy in the 30s, 40s, 50s. But it's in a sense, it was always a fantasy land. There was mm-hmm. not this great effort to make it yeah. super realistic in terms of what it's like to be rich. In fact, it was often some element of some like less wealthy woman who gets to partner herself with the mm. prince you know like yeah, there's something yeah. that plays off of fantasy land with that that honestly looking back on that that all's just far more forgivable for me and uh it just it's just it's sort of just operating in its own space whereas now all these efforts to make things updated and realistic in our current society then kind of change the nature of these characters yeah yeah realism is such a weird thing right now right mm-hmm. i mean your, this gets us back to, I think, your first question. I distinctly remember the term Dickensian being thrown around, maybe by Nolan, um, but certainly by people who are into those Batman films. And I still don't... What what novel are we talking about exactly? First of all, A. <laughs> a, what novel are we talking about? Definitely, it ain't Bleak House. What, right, right. I, like, I, don't, I don't see a lot of Pickwick. I don't, right. <laughs> no. no, exactly. Like I, I don't know what... 
what that term is doing for people, but part of it, I think... I think it usually just means, like, a frayed ruffian in people's <laughs> mind. <laughs> afraid it's ruffian. Serialized. Yeah, 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 serialized. <laughs> but also, like, a, I, I, I take it to imply, like, a huge range of classes of people. The idea that it's supposed to be, you know, like, when people say the wire is Dickensian... I sort of understand there what they mean um, in terms of the breadth, I guess, of the characters there, which, side note, I think is still a little overstated, but I do totally. see what they're, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I do see what they're, they're getting at. But this ties into this like question or problem for me of realism, like why realism needs to necessitate such a literal sense of, yeah. sense of money. Like I, I like, I don't know, I like... I, for example, really like Soderbergh's Behind a Candelabra because it's it's kitsch. It's richness that has no taste, yeah. which is something that I'm interested in much more. And it's something that, you know, I mean, in terms of like the Kardashians, et cetera, is much more uh, weird and exciting to me than anonymous Gotham. Mm -hmm. Soderbergh's actually a really interesting case study in terms of a contemporary American who keeps his eye always, at least to a certain degree, on money, on the bottom line. Yeah. Yeah, and it's certainly there in the Magic Mike pictures. Yes. yes. Uh, it's there in, say, the girlfriend experience. Mm -hmm. It's there in something like Bubble. And he's really a bit oh, of an yeah. outlier in terms of yeah. you have a sense that he's really thought through what people's checking account balances look like. And yeah. there's not a surfeit of people you can really say that about who are working regularly in American pictures. Yeah. And I think the I think Magic Mike XXL is a really good example of what we're sort of talking about, where there is this element of realism, but then there's also complete and ridiculous fantasy. Well, and like it unmoors a little bit from that. And I mean, it's not in the strictest sense of the word, a Soderbergh picture, but it's right. very much its own animal as opposed to the first one, which I think is much more married to a, I mean, you, you go on site, you see like a Spanish tile being laid mm -hmm. down. It's really very, very interested in just the kind of nuts and bolts of getting by day to day. And that's still there in double XL, but it, has transformed and moved off into something else, which good for it. Yeah, like a Russ Meyer movie. Yeah. Both guys. Anyway. Yeah, you know, I mean, I so I still have the argument with a lot of friends about whether or not Magic Mike is actually about the economy. Because I know I know I know we want to resist some of us want to resist this idea, but when I rewatch it, it's it's like I'm amazed again and again by how little dancing there is mm -hmm. in the first film and even how by by how it's mitigated by you know, we're watching the dance from backstage as the kid because he's thinking about making money. Um, you know, there's a sense there's a sense that he's accruing a knowledge to help him learn how to do this dance. That's that's not the same thing as being in the audience and being turned on. Even though I mean, you know, it's all man ass and abs, <laughs> so you can be turned on anyway. Right. But but yeah, there, there's a sense there's a sense that Soderbergh is really interested in thinking about money and knowledge. Um, and yeah, the labor of it, I think it's really... I mean, I mean for me, the, the, the crux of Magic Mike is very much, you know, these are all working class guys. These are all blue collar right. guys mm -hmm. whose only skill set, as it were, is 
what they physically have. All they own is their bodies and about an inch outside of it. Yeah. And having to repurpose and reconfigure the value of that in a you know changed market, which makes it sound very dry and (laughs) not at all the movie that it actually is. But it's there if you you know if you choose to take it for that. Right. Another filmmaker that I think is sort of interesting and an outlier. Uh, not just because she uh, very specifically deals with questions of wealth, but because she's worked um, in the same milieu, both in fiction and in documentary, is the director of Winner's Bone. Hmm. Oh, what's the name of that director? Deborah Granick, yes. I guess, Eric, could you sort of speak to her... We've all seen these movies. I get branded as Mr. Documentary. Well, you don't have to be. Um, you don't, has everyone else? I haven't seen her documentary. I've only seen Winter's Bone. Oh, okay. Winter's Bone is a bit of a lightning rod in, uh, on these issues, mm-hmm. and I think for good reason, because though there is a sense of realism and authenticity there, it's also, it, it does veer a bit, and because it's it's it plays with genre. Which I think is commendable, and that's fine. But at the same time, once you start playing with genre, then you're dealing with good guy, bad guy, boogeyman, uh, and, and that's, you know, so. And yet, you look at the documentary film she made; it's pretty fantastic, um, and very, very intimate, and succeeds. I think at not at like pretending that it is coming from within, but I really do feel like enough time is spent, and there's an, it, that that it, it does. It does sort of arrive not from the outside, but from somewhere within this milieu. And instead of being about poverty, poverty or about people who are who you might consider white trash, say what they're reckoning with is far more nuanced and particular mm-hmm. to lives and to particular to what happens over the course of months and years. So that it's not the subject of the film is not poverty. The mm-hmm. subject of the film, the subject of the films, may not have a lot of money, and they may live in trailer parks, but. What they're reckoning with is family and race and class and money, constant concerns about money and how much things cost. Um, well, and also psychological damage. Psychological and then, damage. And I think, I mean, because it is, I think on paper it sounds very like a quirky fiction movie where it's like, this big tough guy loves little dogs. <laughs> and it's like, no, this is actually like kind of an amazing transformation that happened to him and what has happened in his life and seeing somebody who has seen the world but was literally closed off from everything. Mm-hmm. Like seeing someone who's had that journey like speak and like see their life is utterly fascinating and wonderful. Agreed. But Agreed. When you say the subject of the film is not poverty, it makes me wonder what you think of Wendy and Lucy, which is a film I've argued about with people who, I like Wendy and Lucy, I think, but I I struggle a little bit with what, what that movie is about, mm-hmm. I think, and I wonder what you... Yeah, I think, I, I mean, I, I like her films a lot, and Wendy and Lucy's probably the one that I struggle with the most, because it's a little too... There's not a lot of room to move around within it. No. You know, it's clear where the film's coming from. It's clear what the right. issues are. Um, I think that it's sort of looking to get it in the realm of, of sort of Darden storytelling. But there's just way more life around the Darden Brothers films. Absolutely. There's, there's, a, there's, there's maybe it's, maybe it's about terrain too, because they make films that are mostly set in cities. And so you get to see the life and the interactions and all this stuff. Whereas Wendy and Lucy is, there's almost something utopian about it at the same time it's dystopian which seems very sort of from where it's from which is interesting and i love that it's from there 
but I don't know. I'm sort of talking around that a little bit, but yeah, it's, it's a bit issue oriented. Sure. In yeah. terms of where it's coming from, is that what you're? Yeah, it's a it's a little. This feels weird to say about a movie in which the subject is it's you know very bottom line, yeah. um, lack of money, but it's a little too bottom liney for me. Mm-hmm. It's I think like I compare it to. When you mentioned the Dardenne brothers, I compare it to like Lorna's silence. Even just what mm-hmm. aesthetically happens for me when I hear the click of her heels, the urgency there throughout that movie as she's mm-hmm. rushing from place to place. Mm-hmm. Um, I, that that does something for my sense of the despair <laughs> of, you know, I, I, I don't know. That, that's, that's also a little bit more lively. I don't know what I'm saying, really. It's just that, yeah, Wendy and Lucy, I walk away from it thinking, you know, this is both astute, but also having been really poor, it felt myopic to me Mm -hmm. uh, in Mm -hmm. a way that wasn't helpful. Mm -hmm. Because I think that's sort of a running theme as also someone who has been poor, like looking at films that are about poverty, where it's like it is focused on a single event as opposed to like a holistic sense of this is my whole life. You know, when you take it and put it in a narrative structure as opposed to like a documentary or a more nuanced, less three-act structured thing, you lose that greater sense. And it's just like, I have to get over this obstacle. Well, no, if you're poor, you're constantly dealing with obstacles. I have to get my tooth extracted. How am I going to pay for my tooth extraction? Like, I mean, maybe less of an issue now than it was in the past. But yeah, there's this narrowing that happens sometimes, which is, uh, I think, a disservice to the subject at large. Well, I I feel like one thing that Dardenne's do so well is that you're simultaneously working through not knowing what's going to happen next. Mm-hmm. You actually don't. Right. It's actually yeah. not a sense of like, well, I know what's going to happen. My God, the worst thing is going to happen. No, you don't actually know that's that how that's how it's going to go, particularly the way they shoot it, particularly the way they unfold, see, the sequences unfold. But also you actually don't know how people are going to react to things right. either. I mean, yeah. so the, there's a sense of like what is going to happen on this journey to try to make a living or to get through this scenario or to find a place to sleep or whatever. But then the characters are going to act unpredictably as well because they're actually human beings. Mm -hmm. So there's not like this is a cipher that is a poor person who's going through this situation. No, it's far more complicated than that. And there's variables involved with the main characters as well as variables around out there with the world, which is realism. (laughs) That is realistic. Um, And just a fuller portrait. I mean, the Dardens are an interesting case study because, I mean, this moves us away a little bit from the American scene, and I think it's not a particularly controversial statement to say that they are very, very much spring from a kind of Catholic social justice mm-hmm. tradition, and that is an entirely separate tradition of filmmaking that deals with destitution um pedro costa springs to mind immediately and even if we don't particularly limit ourselves to the european scene we can look at somebody like john ford who i think probably made the greatest movie about real bone deep poverty that's ever been made within the hollywood system the grapes of wrath Mm -hmm. um And then we can really draw in a whole host of different kind of working European filmmakers. There's a whole tradition there, which even if for the most part it's filmmakers who are coming from a sort of secularized perspective, that that imprint of, uh, you know, the Catholic tradition of this sort of beatification of suffering 
yeah. is still very much alive and well. And the Dardens are one instance of this. Yeah. But I mean, do you think that's a problem? We're in an unprecedented era now where there are a lot of studio films or I think of Florence Foster Jenkins, for example, where there's a moment in the film where it just totally becomes like, don't be mean to rich people. Rich people, like, just because they're rich doesn't mean they're bad. Actually, maybe they're better than all of us. And it's like this, it's like, well, no, because the relationship between art and money is so much more complicated than that. But it's really, it's like, don't be mean to Florence, even though she can't sing. She just, even though she bought her way into this situation. And I think that that's a problem. But potentially thinking of poverty only in terms of isn't this suffering exquisite like that's also a problem i'm not necessarily saying that pedro costa or you know the dardens are doing that but it is if if we are sort of not necessarily labeling things as problematic or you know superlative well i mean the 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 accusation that is at least occasionally leveled toward Costa is that of aestheticizing poverty, which is which is dumb. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've just never. I, I know. I don't know what that statement means. I mean, as soon as you're pointing a camera at something, you're aestheticizing it. Yeah. Right. Uh, if you're Too making bad. a film, <laughs> I, I don't really know exactly what that phrase means. I would be open to being corrected on this point, but. I've I've never really understood that as a sort of angle of criticism. I mean, right. I, I could certainly be done offensively. I don't think it is in the case of the Costa films. Right, because I mean, there are, obviously in third cinema there is. I mean, that Caravaggio, he aestheticized the shit out of some poverty. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> or I mean, like you know, uh, like a lot of like um, Brazilian new wave cinema novo people, um, or third cinema itself, trying to come up with a new aesthetic, like the aesthetics, like hungry cinema, mm-hmm. or. But even then, you're still, again, you're still creating an aesthetic. Like, you're still trying to work within, not necessarily... Yeah, it's tricky. It's a very tricky thing. Um, but yeah, I would agree. Yeah, there's a book called Let Us Now Praise Famous Men. <laughs> <laughs> which is an amazing book. Yeah, in which you can read James A.G. gnashing his teeth and giving himself a bleeding ulcer over <laughs> the attendant difficulties and representation so i don't think we're gonna necessarily take care of it today no but the <laughs> photos take are... a crack at it <laughs> the photos are great though I mean, one of the things that, i mean this is a this is maybe pushing things in a too solidly in another place but we don't which we don't have to stay in but one of the things i've been thinking about in general a lot is is and it certainly applies maybe even best to this scenario is this notion that um, phrases like the aestheticization of, of poverty, that's levied because the assumption or the determination is that he's making films about people in a class that he's not belonging to. Right. And and I think that, to me, that's the most repellent aspect of that kind of criticism yeah. because they're basically saying, well, you don't have a right because you're not from blank. Let us now praise famous men. Could you know is, is in that category as well, and I feel like that's one of the great works of literature and great works of reporting. Yeah. And it makes me feel like we get to this point where we are actually dismissing the activ- the action of empathy, and the action of understanding, yeah. and the attempt to understand, um, which is one of the great powers of art, one of the great powers of of journalism, mm-hmm. um, depending on how you're approaching it and for why. Yeah, and I think about this as it, as it pertains to a lot of things, but but in documentary, this I find this frustrating because 
these that this sort of criticism gets levied all the time and i feel like and sometimes it's actually levied and i know specific examples of this when the filmmakers are coming from poverty right. they're making a movie about people in poverty and it almost inevitably the criticism is coming from people in new york or los angeles right, right. and it's sort of like oh wow you're shooting poverty this makes me uncomfortable you're a white person you shouldn't be doing this right. and mm -hmm. And I feel like that's entirely unproductive. That's what that what that's doing is that's actually just looking people looking to score points, right. looking to score political points, not actually looking to reckon with what's being shown yeah. and why. Um, well, and I think that sort of that. I don't know. Go ahead. Sorry. No, I was going to say it's the same, very much the same sort of thing that happens whenever Alexander Payne makes a mm -hmm. movie. Uh, I think Nebraska was probably one like of recent memory. That was one mm -hmm. of the most uh, disgusting. I think. Let me show how much I care about poor people moves uh, in places that I've never known or never cared about. Where it's like, oh, you're making fun of these people, and it's like, well, no, I'm sorry. Like, mm -hmm. Will Forte would work at that place. That is what his girlfriend would look like. That is what his fucking family situation would be like. Shut up. Me, you know, and again, it's like, like. It's, it's like, again, it's this idea that you're protecting these helpless people yeah. who, you know, by virtue of what you focus on, you're actually, you're actually part of what is taking their voice away. You know no, what I exactly. mean? Exactly. And you have to live in such a sheltered life if you've yeah. never been in living rooms like that. Yeah, exactly. Because right. my God, I've right. been in so many fucking yeah. living rooms like right. that and they're right. horrible <laughs> and it's hilarious. And come on, what are we supposed to do? Is it beautify that? I mean, I don't know. It's sanitized. Yeah. Sanitize yeah. it. And in the case of, of nonfiction, I feel like part of those criticisms come from a, a just a lack of nuance about documentarians' relationships to their subjects and the Absolutely. ways that this mm -hmm. works. Granted, there are also plenty of documentaries that don't make much of that relationship, but mm -hmm. but there's there's much to be said for trying to understand that. Mm -hmm. Like perceiving mm -hmm. that from a film from a documentary in particular is one of the for me, one of the the joys of documentaries. Right. Figuring out figuring out the relationship between the person behind the camera and the camera and the person in front of it. And it's really way too easy to just dismiss any subject matter out right. of hand. Right. Just because of any ideas you have about the way that triangulation works. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, a, a, another film that's perhaps worth bringing into the conversation is Roberto Menervini's uh, The Other Side. Yes. Sure. Which is, I think, an extraordinary instance of a kind of collaboration almost a symbiosis between filmmaker and subject and i mean this is i think the role of a sort of viewer intuition but you can tell the difference between what they're able to get in that film and somebody who rolled into town a week ago uh wanted to knock off some poverty porn and then hit <laughs> right. the festival right. circuit and right. get laid because um, <laughs> that last exactly... part is very important. <laughs> that's where that's all going. Yeah. If we want to again, if With we want to talk about the rolling down your cheek, but in, but in our Twitter, you know, discourse, yeah, that's a, a you know, and a, a white Italian filmmaker dropping in on the Deep South and watching some people take drugs and. He's not from there. He's an outsider. What does he possibly know? Even though he comes from a small town in Italy, which is just as racked right. with those problems and is just as right. poor. Yeah, yeah. Right. And and even if he didn't. Exactly. Even if he didn't, as it's as Nick said, you spent you watch that film and you can tell where that's coming from and you can tell what went into that. Or even stop the pounding heart. Where, mm -hmm. I mean, I would not. I think. Um, 
The Other Side is a far stronger film, but Stop the Pounding Heart, I mean, that is really excruciating to watch at points because you have this intense closeness that is, again, clearly very hard won, and you're seeing somebody literally like breaking down in a way and mm-hmm. struggling with their mm-hmm. faith, and it's excruciating to watch. Mm-hmm. Like It's so sad, and it's like, I don't think ever that we can only ever say that hybrid filmmaking is the only ever way to get at these issues, but I think it's a really... At least in the case of Minervini, it's a really strong and like fantastic way. Nick used the word symbiosis, and I think that's apt here. But at the same time, I don't think that I don't think it's required to have symbiosis either. No, I right. feel like the not, fact right. that there is a seam sometimes, and you can really tell where a subject ends and the filmmaker begins, or mm-hmm. vice versa, is really productive actually, mm-hmm. because that leaves the it lets the audience in on that a bit and be able to weigh one against the other without it being condemning the whole process for, mm-hmm. right, for condemning the attempt. That's the other thing that always amazes me too about sort of. And I, I I don't even generally think this way, but like I think it does come down to this because these films actually only open on the coasts a lot of the time. Yeah. Um, you know this notion of of you know of of protecting the middle of America, <laughs> an area that most of these people have never even visited or would ever visit, right. and they're condemning a filmmaker that spent years of their time and their life in these mm-hmm. spaces. Right. Again, not to say that the films themselves shouldn't be criticized for things that that they ought to be criticized for, but the idea that somebody has decided to spend that kind of time, that environment to those people, like that's already starting from somewhere that maybe give them a little bit of credit that they've thought through some of these issues, maybe. Or or even like 20 years after the fact, outrage that has come sort of around Paris is burning, where there just seems Mm. to be like a fundamental... uh, Well, as I recall, Bell Hooks was outraged about Paris is burning 25 years she ago. Was, she was up she on was. that. She was. She's an early responder. She was. Sure. She was. Well, you could probably plus, say that about Bell Hooks and a lot of yes. things. Yeah. No, no, I love Bell Hooks, but I mean, I'm sort of, I'm talking more about the late breaking one or sort of the popular movement against that film where it's like, she should give money from the movie to the participants. And I'm like, for, do you understand how documentary you don't understand how documentary works like it would be gr- like uh, in a gr- in a great world yeah i mean there aren't that many billionaires but there are like a lot of millionaires among documentary filmmakers oh i'm sure i mean most actually i would Name say them. yeah <laughs> i mean they kind of all <laughs> are right the they all make list. millions on these yeah, movies like, they're just you, raking them in once you sell that shit to pbs i mean you're just printing money <laughs> just saying i mean speaking of uh God bless them, the flyover states. Uh, can we talk maybe more about popular cinema? Because again, I think what you're talking about is totally interesting where it's like now, um, because the way that media has changed, the culture industry response to film in general, but especially these limited release, very small films that are getting at best a week run in New York or LA. Yeah, these are all nothing movies that nobody cares about. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, can we talk about that? Because it's sort. It's. I mean, we. Because we. I mean, it's like because everybody else. Well, is talking if we're, about if we're talking films, about the popular cinema, yeah, the popular cinema. Cinema. <laughs> it's, Peter a pretty, it's a pretty. Say. It's a pretty white collar cinema that we have for ourselves these days, yeah. which is, I suppose, pretty reflective of demographic shifts in these United States in general. Um, we don't see an enormous amount of extreme poverty. I'm kind of taxing myself to think of a movie that was really a multiplex movie that that's really Hunger my games. What's that? Hunger Games. Uh, I haven't seen those movies. Oh, fair. I don't yeah, I wasn't even thinking about fantasy, but yeah. 
it is weird because it is sort of like in this fantasy. I tried reading The Hunger Games and I had to put it down because it was so badly written. But (laughs) as I understand it, part of the reason why that franchise is both the books and the films are so popular among people who are not teenagers or preteens is that because it is because of the setting, it can be an allegory for anything, basically. Like it can be a flexible metaphor, flexible metaphor. There we go. That's what I mean. Harry Potter is poor, too. Oh, Um, am I the only one who's read those books? I really can't speak to the movies at all, but the cover art always really offended (laughs) me. (laughs) Fair enough. Um, Just didn't like this. You could remove those, but (laughs) that's (laughs) that's fair enough. But yeah, uh, yeah, you know, Harry was, you know, your your orphan British boy hero. Um, pretty poor. I well, I actually don't remember if his if the if the family that took him in his aunt and uncle were that poor, but certainly the Weasley family does not have very much money. Didn't J.K. Rowling live in a car? Or is that Jewel? That's everyone. Am <laughs> I like conflating J.K. That's... Rowling and Jewel again? <laughs> God damn it! <laughs> but J.K. Rowling was very broke when she started the series. That's true. That's right. true. She's not anymore. Um, no. <laughs> as was Jewel when she recorded pieces of you. <laughs> or uh, wrote uh, A Night Without Armor. That's right. Her, <laughs> that was true. Oh, that's so I still have that book on my, my uh, side table. Yeah. <laughs> wow. I was racking my brain trying to remember the title. A Night Without Armor? Yeah, yeah it's a pun. <laughs> <laughs> and now both J.K. Rowling and Jewel are very rich. Which allows us to segue. <laughs> That's true. Can we talk? Can we talk about? Can I just? Can I just say that I completely guiltlessly love movies like Marie Antoinette. Mm-hmm. I love the pleasure in things. I love the ple- You know, I mean, I don't because you know. First of all, because I don't, it, I can't relate at all. So it's a very exotic experience for yeah. me to see all those cakes and shoes and dresses, <laughs> um, and palaces. But also just. I actually really appreciate a filmmaker who can train our eye and our sensibilities on the pleasure mm-hmm. of accruing things and having things um, and touching them and, you know, not really remembering all the things you have. You have all these people who can sort of bring you what you need or whatever, like share at the beginning of Clueless with their computer, putting an outfit together, Yeah, <laughs> which is perfect and will always be perfect. But uh, yeah, I like, I like pleasure. Um, I, I'm into it. Wolf of Wall Street. I, th- I think the vast majority of moviegoers <laughs> would tend to agree with you I, on and that. Thank, God bless If them. you give most people the option between watching a very wealthy person doing amazing fun things <laughs> and watching like some poor person in Sri Lanka eating a bowl of mud, most people <laughs> will very go true. for the yacht every time. Very true. What's in the box? Pain. I don't want to touch the box. I don't want to put my hand in the box. Then, okay. <laughs> Next. Yeah, um, you know, excess tends to be a more alluring prospect. Absolutely. <laughs> Every time. Well, can we talk about the excess that is in The Wolf of Wall Street uh, versus maybe? Well, I don't. It actually kind of glorifies Jordan Belfort. <laughs> <laughs> Which is kind of, I don't think they should do that. But I mean, this is my, I mean, obviously that's a charge that's been leveled at Martin Scorsese 
for ever. Mm, I think yeah, literally sure. since the beginning of time. No, I mean, I, I watched yeah. Goodfellas on the plane uh, mm. in between Rain Man and Batman versus Superman, The Dawn of Justice. Oh. Um, the extended cut? The extended cut of Batman vs. Superman, yeah. the Dawn of probably Justice? Not, probably not. It was the airplane. It was the airplane, no. How long is this flight going to be? <laughs> Come on. Um, <laughs> what else? And my point being, yes, Goodfellas and Wolf of Wall Street are not hugely dissimilar no. movies in terms of their just accruing of excess upon excess. You know, it's It's the tactic of... The parent who sees you smoking a cigarette, then you have to smoke the whole cart until you puke. Uh, <laughs> you yeah. know, both both films are sort of taking that tack. But Wolf of Wall Street, this was like, it came out at the end of 2013, which was the 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 year of also I believe Baz Luhrmann's Great Gatsby and Spring Breakers Spring Spring, Breaker. Spring Breakers and Bling, um, Ring? Bling Ring. Thank you. Uh, so. Uh, think peace fodder a plenty yeah but i would think i would actually to make a think piece a verbal thing that we can record on this podcast what about would you characterize uh the aviator another leo starring scorsese film very explicitly about wealth versus the wolf of wall street because it's like i remember seeing like people on Facebook being mad and being like, this glorifies wealth, this is fucked up. And I'm like, well, nobody saw the aviator and wanted to bug Ava Gardner's phone. Nobody wanted to do <laughs> Catherine Hepburn's phone. No one wanted to do that after watching that movie. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> movies is movies. <laughs> well, I, mean, I, I, I feel like one of the things that gets lost in this, I mean, I mean by, by looking at every film through this lens, which we're doing in this podcast, and this is me not condemning what we're doing, but it gives us an opportunity to talk about the fact that this, these things get done, yeah. which is that especially with Scorsese, it's about point of view. It's always yeah, about yeah. point of view. Absolutely. The idea that this is about wealth or about you know emulating somebody's behavior, it's absurd. It's about point of view. It's always about mm. where is this being, ca- who, who's, this, who's this coming from? Where are these aspirations coming from? It's from, he's, it's in his words. Right. So of course it's going to be celebrating these things. He loved his life. Yeah, he would like, that's to, he would he, like it back. He would do it again. <laughs> this this film is supposed to have like some massive distance from him when, yeah. the, when the conceit is that it's from his point of view. Of course not. Right. But I feel like that's such a fundamental literary, um, uh, cons- like, uh, just the fundamentals of how the film is constructed and how the story is told, that we are now in a point where we somehow are, we, we're disarmed. We actually can't approach reading things that way. Mm. Well, it's more. about celebrating or not, or it's I, about I, I think, promoting or I not. think fundamental, though, is the fact that Wolf of Wall Street is a wide-release multiplex movie, mm-hmm. and... The critical apparatus tends to get much more concerned about the ability of spectators to negotiate these sort of things when the spectators might not have precisely the same kind of educational background as them. The idea basically, yeah, the idea basically being that, you know, Joe Lunchpail might not be able to negotiate the you know rocky straits of the wolf of wall street right. if if wolf of wall street had come out in like two theaters yeah then none of we wouldn't be talking about sure. any of this no. but because somebody who is not you know educated in as a viewer in quite the same way might come across it we're, we're afraid of how they might respond to it 
But it's also just cultural stupidity too. It's sort of like the entire, the whole history of culture is that things get reappropriated no matter what you expect, how you're telling, instructing people, or sure. if you're yeah. instructing them how to respond to something, they'll instruct, they'll respond however the hell they want. Mm-hmm. The idea of Scarface being an aspirational tale sure. is absurd, but that's what culture did with it yeah. sure. because it wanted to. <laughs> but that's that's where the hand wringing comes from. It's just an idea sure. that we're not going to be able to instruct right. responses and that they might be something that we're uncomfortable with. But that's why it's always coming from someplace that's not actually understanding art or appreciating the art. Almost always, those are that's a that's a point of view that's coming that's wanting film to operate in an instructive way to well, operate within the politics that it want that we want. Luckily, to as a corrective, the Big Short came along. <laughs> so I'm sorry we're... that made me. Ch- <laughs> 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 we no longer need to worry about anyone not knowing precisely what the thing that they're watching is telling them. Because this, mm. you know, corrective piece has been made. Margot Robbie gets in the hot tub to tell you about uh, the bonds or whatever. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm a defender of that film, I but know I don't, you are. I don't, I don't, for from a very particular space. But Eve Ho. please, yeah, yeah. no, <laughs> I would love. <laughs> to. I, it's out there. It's out there. It's, no, he it's, wrote. He wrote a very wonderful thing that you can see online about um, the Big Short, and I think you make a very interesting argument. I would simply say that I like the idea of the Big Short. And I like the idea of what it was trying to do. However, I think in the ex- in its actual execution, I think it really was very reductive about what mm-hmm. happened uh, mm-hmm. during the financial crisis and not for the benefit of the viewers who needed to be instructed about what really mm-hmm. happened. Um, and then also I just got really, just parts of it just really got under my skin, like where they're like, well, actually, this meeting didn't take place. We're condensing time because that's how movies worked. I'm like, fuck off. Come on. And, and I really like Adam McKay. And I really actually liked the fact that at the end of The Other Guys, it's just like facts about the financial crisis, just apropos of nothing. And I, I, I thought that was a really ballsy move. But that film itself, I don't know. Mm. Just, yeah, I don't know. You had objections as well. well. <laughs> I, I won't be a total hater. There are movies that I like. There are things that I like about uh, The Big Short. I oh, like, me too. Definitely. I like Christian Bale a lot in that movie. And of the little mini... You know, I, don't, I call them webinars. Is what I call the the, the Margot Robbie and yeah. um, I like the Selena Gomez webinar. Um, or do you just like Selena Gomez? That is definitely not true. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> but but I, yeah, you know, I think my confusion over that movie was um, tone. I mm. by the time. Um, why am I blanking on his name? Who was the main guy? Steve, Steve Carell. Carell. Yeah. Uh, the brother the t- shit was like, oh, what? Good lord. But yeah, by the time he started to feel outraged, um, which no, he is was around, always mad. That was his. Problem. He was. He was always. He was, he was always in the mad. Rage seminar. But there webinar. is. A, there's a point at which there's a sort of, a, of a, a kind of moral pivot, or really just hopping on a spaceship into outrage. Mm-hmm. That was around the time of the stuff with the brother hitting the fan, and around the time of seeing more of the poor people yeah. um, living out of their cars. It was around then that I decided that I that I wasn't that excited by um, this movie's sense of who gets to feel bad, who gets to feel mm-hmm. shame, mm-hmm. who gets to feel mad. Yeah. I would I would, you know, I mean this is a case in which I think the 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 use of poverty is not very astute. Mm-hmm. Um, I would almost have preferred that it left 
poor people out of the world, out of the <laughs> worldview of these people doing these bad things. Because well, I don't it's know that it's literally they're... the one guy living in his car. <laughs> right. Yeah, <laughs> right, right. With with like wife and kids, I yeah. guess, and it, maybe it, a dog. It seems like it was like a day of pickup shots. Like they put the movie together. Like Shit, there's not a poor person in here. We gotta throw this guy with the car in. <laughs> Uh, right. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 yeah, I, that isn't to say that, I mean, you know, I also just have a thing about, like, aestheticizing information. I just, this is why I like Shane Carruth's primer, because I don't walk mm. away at all understanding what the fuck they're talking about. <laughs> but, but there's a sense with which the information kind of regulates the ways that they move relative to each other from scene to scene. It just, mm-hmm. it has a, it has a place. Like, cinematically, it has a purpose in a way that the big short as an adaptation didn't quite work for me. And I think that relates a lot to how it deals with making money, um, stealing money, whatever whatever you want to call it, whatever that movie was about. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I wondered if it, it might be germane to talk a little bit about outside of sort of feature films, a whole cycle of kind of wealth exploitation television that's been around throughout the 21st century let's say Mm -hmm. again i guess this pertains directly to uh the man who's going to make america great again uh who springs from this but i mean there are all number of you know instances i guess you can go back as far as robin leach and maybe further yeah but uh but that was so austere (laughs) <laughs> comparatively accessible like it Bressonian was, even yeah I, <laughs> uh, Robin Leach was the donkey <laughs> um, no but it was really you could sort of make an argument about Reagan's America but it's funny to see like again I would say the difference between something like training places versus something like Florence Foster Jenkins the way that wealth manifests itself in that completely like, completely different you know, and where it's where it's this idea that like rich people are bad or like they're stuck up or they have like they're constantly working to fuck you over versus something like the Kardashians where it's like these people are worse than you. They're mm. rich. They're soft. Yeah. <laughs> and I actually wanted to just briefly talk about a film that maybe maybe some people here. I, I hesitate to call it a film. That's not appropriate at all. But roughly contemporaneous to the rise of Paris Hilton. There was a HBO documentary called Born Rich. Oh, I saw that. <laughs> oh, that was which which features made by I, a rich guy. Yeah, it would the heir Scion. to the Johnson and Johnson uh, fortune. That's uh, right. Which features Ivanka Trump. Yes. Uh, among the many, and the the premise of it is, it's just this young guy. I mean, I think he must be in his early twenties at the point that it's being made, who's going around interviewing his fellow heirs and heiresses Mm -hmm. as to you know what is you know the rarefied uh the rarefied air that they breathe what is what is that atmosphere like what precisely does it do to one uh how in what ways to paraphrase scott fitzgerald uh, are the rich different from you or i and it's a terrible fucking movie yeah it's it's so it's pretty fantastic well well, that's crazy because it's like again he i mean he says in the film 
what it actually means to be at this level has never been portrayed before. Yeah. And then you see it and you're like, okay, I understand why all of you like want to like shoot up heroin because yeah. this is like horrible. Like it's unwatchable. It's 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 really ineptly made, yes. but as a kind of crude version of what will become a much more prevalent cultural object. It's yeah. fascinating. It also has one of the best characters that I know of, this guy called Cody Franchetti, who is <laughs> at one point he's like a collector of rare books yes. and uh an accruer of like art history uh degrees. And at one point he's musing uh about, you know, sometimes I go out and I'm you know, I, I'm reading a book and all I can think about is wanting to get some pussy. <laughs> and then I go out and I get the pussy and I'm thinking of a book. <laughs> there is literally a New Yorker cartoon to that effect. But yes, I, that was one of the great. That was, that was such, I mean, and again, it's like only the rich experience this. Really. Oh, no, I mean, that's, I mean, you don't get the pussy book thing. Um, anyways... So I By this way was supposed of saying, to be bad, but this sounds fantastic. <laughs> well, no, no, it's, just... it's a unique object. <laughs> no, I mean, which is my way. That's that's the way that I express this sure. thing is objectively as an aesthete, a piece of garbage, but I love it. <laughs> yeah, a unique sounds, object. Sounds great. It's yeah. totally because he knows that he has the keys to this thing. He has the keys to the country club, and he's going to let us peek in the door for a little bit. And for that reason alone, you want to sit through like these embarrassingly bad edits and yeah. all this other barely competent NYU Tisch grad sort of shit. And it does have a certain candor about it. Yeah. Uh, if we can call. <laughs> so let me give my vigorous stamp of approval to, to 2003's Born Rich. You know, I think a lot of the language of, of wealth for me in shows like the Kardashians is from uh, hip hop videos. Yeah. Which is actually a side note, or maybe not a side note, but one of my favorite things about... Um, Michael Mann's work in movies like Black Hat or Miami Vice is just those cutaways to like a jet or a <laughs> boat. It's very hip hop to me. I, you know, if he's listening, think that he should really get into directing rap videos because I think I think for me, um, and this is relevant to the Kardashians absolutely, but also reality television broadly about rich people. There's just a way the aesthetic is supposed to move. There's a way that you the rich person are supposed to toss your hair back in that boat and just live the life. I think I think those shows are better at understanding that guiltlessly than a lot of so-called more woke art. Yeah, that's, I mean, it's true that like a lot of that visual vocabulary is almost wholesale taken out of like the Hype Williams playbook Absolutely. circa yeah. like 1995. Yeah. A yeah. lot of people exiting vehicles, low angle, mm, right. like pan, uh, sort of horseshoe shaped pan. Uh, yeah. Right around the pool. Yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah. Right. And the sort of barrel distortion, very yeah, yeah. Uh, stubby lens. It's yeah. true. Yeah. But, the thing, but the thing about Hype Williams, though, is that he is actually a great experimenter. And he does some really experimental weird shit. And like, I was so sad when he did, was it? The super ho video where it's like Nicki Minaj. It's like if this was like old hype, he would have like shot her into the sun and like set her on fire. And instead, she's just like kind of cute and whatever. Right, and it's right. like this isn't weird enough to be hype Williams. Mm. So it's just sort of like, yeah, absolutely. but I don't know. We all we all get worse with age. Let's not lie. <laughs> not me. I don't know about <laughs> you guys. I mean, it's it's worth talking. I think a little bit about 
we've been talking mostly about things that relish and that really kind of scrunch their toes into the like uh, luxuriant carpeting. And then it's worth thinking a little bit about this whole alternate tradition, which is the sort of Antonioni tradition, let's call it. Like yes. <laughs> wealth as a vacuum chamber, as sure. a suffocating and oppressive. Uh, and I mean, I suppose some of the instances that we're drawing on here are oppressive in their own way, mm-hmm. but not, you know, precisely in that boot on the throat, leclise sort of way. <laughs> sure. Well, I saw Tony Erdman yesterday. I don't know if anybody's seen it yet. No, I haven't Males. seen it yet. And it, it, I think it's amazing. And mm-hmm. I think it's, it, and it, it, the way it deals with um, money and it, the way that it deals with sort of business wealth mm-hmm. life in contrast to corporate culture, corporate culture, let's say, um, is, is fantastic, um, mm-hmm. without ever being about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and in, in that sense, I guess sort of somewhere in between the luxuriating in wealth and wealth as being an existential crisis, um, where on one hand, these are spaces that are appealing in some ways and in other ways, yes, they're vacuous, but not because wealth is vacuous, but because if you're working all the time to do something that is actually kind of morally problematic mm-hmm. and you're denying that it's morally problematic and you're working all the time, you actually don't enjoy anything about what you have. Mm-hmm. And so you almost have to mistreat people and mistreat your own your own sort of body and, and, and life and, and daily life in order to actually get any value out of it at all because mm-hmm. you can't. Um, it's, really, it's really smart in that way. Yeah. Um, but no, you haven't seen it, so it's hard to sort of like bounce off. But it's um, you know, yeah, it'll be talked about plenty this fall. I'm oh, sure. I'm sure, yeah. And I think I think what you're touching on is interesting because I don't think, given the fact that now on a sitcom you'll have someone who's just a generic sort of white collar worker instead of you know somebody who works on the line, somebody who owns like a body shop, some sort of blue collar work, you know, that really digging into what that means. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know. It's I'm still waiting for like the truly great you know cultural product that deals with the gig economy in an honest way as opposed to just mm. like yeah like i'm a freelancer i'm graphic designer mm. la, la, la. like yeah. just that sort yeah. of like how yeah. blase it is and like if you actually live that life mm-hmm. it is nothing like that at all yeah right <laughs> so well one way one way or the other i think everything's always about whether or not it's relatable mm-hmm. and somebody somewhere determines what is or is not relatable like what the <laughs> common denominator is and what we all understand and experience right. so celebrities are people too because they have strollers and shop and things. they go to starbucks sometimes which makes you want to hate them because you're like fuck you <laughs> yeah. but at the same time like there are aspects of their lives which i don't understand that i right. if i understood would find relatable probably not because it's anything like my life but because right. it's actually a life mm-hmm. right i don't know well it's, it's interesting to also note the degree to which when we've been looking at contemporary depictions of wealth, we're looking at texts that depict it as a kind of constant spree, whereas the actual fact of the matter, for what I imagine the great majority of the super rich, is you have to be a fairly abstemious person in order to accrue a few billion dollars. And we don't see a lot about 
these people who have just been sitting on untold fortunes for generations who never draw on the principle and that's a whole world that perhaps because it's not thought to have an enormous amount of cinematic Mm -hmm. (laughs) razzle-dazzle we don't really get into the desiccant wasps too much yeah because it, I mean, that is obviously, of course, that's like the great argument against Reaganomics, where it's like after a certain point of wealth, people really don't spend more money. Like they just stop because they've hit that sweet spot. And so, white but, people get money, don't spend it. <laughs> so rude. <laughs> so rude. Spread it around. Give it to us poor. Jesus. Go fund me. Um. One thing we haven't talked about, which I think we can't, but I'll say it now at the end. Is it, we're dealing with like over a hundred years worth of storytelling that is defined either by Marxism or by exultant capitalism. Yes. And right. I am, I, I think we're, we should be done with this. We should be done with that binary about how we tell mm-hmm. these stories. Sure. And we're, I think we're all in our own way saying we want something in between there. And I just, and maybe there are people who are, there's more people who are telling stories that way. Maybe there's more of an, um, there's the culture is shifted regardless of who is telling stories. The culture has shifted enough that we can be telling things differently. But I feel like that, that dominates everything. I mean, there's a certain narrative tradition, particularly with the like rise to power businessman story, yeah. where you always have to have at the end this person having achieved the pinnacle staring into the void, be it Mark Zuckerberg, like F5-ing his friend request at the end of The Social Network, a movie that contains some remarkable things, but I find that ending an absolute flopperoo. <laughs> or, uh, you know, be it, uh, what is it, A Most Violent Year? Yes. Sure. A movie that nobody particularly gave a shit about, but nevertheless, I'll bring it into the conversation. That cut was great. Yeah, uh, <laughs> you know, yet another like, <laughs> yes, you know, what, what profited it a man to gain the world if he loses his soul? Like we always have to end with, you know, the business person standing on the precipice, staring into the void, and or uh, or having seen the void, saying no, yeah, and that's wrong. And there's a you have to stop, and it's and and you know what? Now that I'm I'm back and humble and poor again, it's actually better. Actually, it's better. <laughs> All those romantic comedies where it's about people actually achieving and working really hard to achieve something, and then realize, you know, family's more important. Yeah, right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I don't know how we're gonna make a living, but we just do because we're white and yeah. we live in the city and we'll make a living. Yeah, it's fine. <laughs> I keep thinking of the end of the Bling Ring in these terms, and and I don't know what to you know. I'm mean, first of all. These are kids who steal, bless them. Um, <laughs> and at the end, the Emma Watson character is just, you know, talking about her jail stint, being next to Paris Hilton, but at the, then at the end, kind of, you know, perking up and telling us a link to her, whatever, her page or whatever. There's a sense of, there's just like not an interest in the morality of it that that, that excites me, yeah. <laughs> Frank- yeah. quite frankly. And in addition to the fact that I think she nails that role because it to me is pretty indecipherable whether or not the movie is like just how interested the movie is in making fun of this or how cynical the movie is. I think if the movie just um, sees these things head on and doesn't really entirely know what to do with these creatures either. And I think they're just allowed to be the creatures that they are which is fantastic, frankly. That's more educational to me than feeling bad, feeling good. Mm-hmm. In the spirit of last 10 films, can we each go around and say a 
movie we've seen recently that we liked? Ooh. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'll say briefly, uh, I saw uh, at a festival recently Deborah Stratman's movie, The Illinois Parables, mm-hmm. which will be uh, in New York Film Festival as part of the projections sidebar. And is going to have a week-long run at uh, Film... No, not Film Society, Anthology Film Archives. And I thought it was a very, very rich, really goddamn gorgeous movie, which will be playing Anthology on 16mm. I saw it on a crap Vimeo screener, so I'm looking forward to seeing some semblance of the actual movie. Uh, Just a collection of historical vignettes... uh, all taking place in the state of Illinois through over the course of some 400 years, some well-known, some rather esoteric, uh, interpolated with some of the most haunting and beautiful landscape photography I've seen in recent memory. So that's my pick. Awesome. I saw um, Memories of a Murder, which I saw before Adrian Martin and his partner did a wonderful video essay about it. Christina Lopez. Uh, yeah, I was just really, when I was in film school, the Korean New Wave was sort of, not cresting, but it was really beginning and, you know, everyone really loved Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance, Old Boy, like these, those were sort of getting lumped into the uh, new European extreme sort of stuff and they were definitely part of like this bro-y canon and it didn't always feel, feel super accessible, but Memories of a Murder, just a really fantastic, um, in every way, just beautifully made and also just full of this wonderful, it just really embraces doubt in a way that I think is fantastic. So check it out if you haven't. <laughs> well, and I feel like I already mentioned Tony Erdman. And, and, and you can talk more. Can't, can't do it again. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it's it's a long movie, but it's it, it I, I, it's two hours, 40 minutes, and I didn't look at my watch till two hours, 36 minutes, just, <laughs> just simply because I felt, oh, this might be where we're ending. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to confirm that, you know, just to sort of have that sense. But I didn't have for, for a moment was I not entirely inside that movie. And that's sort of the point. Um, the time is used not to, to give you a set, not, not to approximate uh, real life or anything like that, but to give you a sense that every single scene is not necessarily causal to the next scene. It exists in its own space mm-hmm. and it makes an impression on you. And people are, are making an impression on each other within that space. Um, so it made me think a lot about spaces we inhabit literally but then also spaces that that films inhabit and how they work on us and let us in so uh, yeah it's quite amazing mm-hmm. but i was also at a festival with nick actually in kosovo um docufest and uh we gave the top prize this film depth too which i think is quite amazing and hopefully there's a way for somebody to, to see it in the states eventually mm. well i will lend a hand of support to a movie that nobody's going to see which is too bad which is Pete's Dragon, which is in addition to being, you know, just a cute movie. Mm. Um, it's a very lively, um, imaginative movie. It's a movie that for me, I'm really tired of the term Spielbergian. Um, but one way in which it isn't for me is that it's less interested in the memory of childhood than it is in um, a very immediate, overwhelmed, scary, um, unknown sense of being a child who's in a forest and there's a dragon um, and your parents just died and all kinds of stuff is going on in, in this in this film but um that's way more roll doll 
think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, and you know, the dragon's furry. It is, it is, it is weird in a, a Roald Dahl way for me, but also just, you know, not a perfect movie. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a, a lumberjack and a park ranger married to each other and they don't argue about this, even though the lumberjack is cutting down trees. I don't quite understand how that has caused some sort of discord, but whatever. It's, uh, it's a really good, lively, cute um, movie. Cool. Well, thank you all so much for coming. Thank you for having yeah, me. Yeah, sure. Thank you thank all you. for coming. This is fun. You've been listening to the Film Comet Podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Nicholas Rapold, and edited by Michael Oatmark. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Film Comet is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comet has featured in-depth reviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomet.com slash subscribe to purchase a digital or print subscription to the magazine. Film Comet, at the heart of film culture for over 50 years. <laughs> <laughs>